Well, Proverbs chapter 2. He's talking here about the, the benefits of wisdom. That's the, uh, the subheading in the NEV. And reading through the book of Proverbs, or I suppose the, uh, the chapters which are specifically the, the Proverbs of Solomon, he seems to keep on about the same old themes. He keeps on saying how blessed you will be if you choose the way of wisdom. If you really want wisdom, you're going to be blessed. And he also uh, makes the point that if you are wise, then you're going to have long life and wealth. He talks a lot about money and riches, and he talks about how the wise person gets them and the foolish person doesn't get them, and so forth. Now, the book of Proverbs is, of course, inspired, but it seems to me that there are different uh, methods and levels of inspiration in the Bible. You've got a prophet who may say, thus says the Lord, and then what he says is directly from God. It's um, almost as if the prophet is being used as a fax machine, uh, to sit, or a printer, as it were, to, to relay God's word to us. And there are other things that are written in the Bible, for example, some of the speeches of Job's friends, which are uh, inspired in the sense that the record of them is inspired, but God himself later critiques those words that they say and says, you know, this wasn't right. Well, you've got the words of Sennacherib, uh, sorry, of Rabshaki outside the walls of Jerusalem, mocking the, the God of Israel. Well, yes, the record is inspired, uh, but, of course, the words that he says are, are not true. Now, with uh, the writings of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, yes, this is all true uh, on one level, and yes, it's all inspired by God, but that is not to say that we are not seeing the, the human side of Solomon coming out. Because why I say that is, although the Proverbs are all true as they stand, it seems to me that Solomon is justifying himself, because I started by saying that he keeps talking about the benefits of, the, uh, of, of choosing wisdom, of those who actually decide that I want to be wise, and they will have all these different blessings. Well, who was it who chose wisdom? It was Solomon. And when he goes on to say that wisdom gives you long life and wealth and uh, generally a very uh, prosperous uh, way in this world, well, yes and no, because there's also clear Bible teaching and also our own experience that you can have God's truth, you can be wise, and yet actually your life does not work out in terms of long life, it didn't in the case of the Lord Jesus, uh, nor of wealth and prosperity in this world, and it didn't in the, the case of the Lord Jesus. And so I think that he's getting uh, a bit willfully confused here. The, the long life and the wealth are specifically what God said he was going to give to Solomon. Not because of anything that Solomon did, but because God said, I'm really pleased that you wanted to have wisdom, therefore I will give you all the things that a young king might like to have, but he didn't ask for, uh, that is, long life and uh, success against your enemies, general prosperity and wealth, I'll give you all that stuff, but that's from me. That's just a gift from me. And Solomon seems to confuse that by talking in the Proverbs about all these things in a way that justifies himself. And we know how the story of Solomon ends. It ends, as the, the record is very clear, in, in Kings that his wives turned away his heart, and the whole message of Ecclesiastes would appear to me to be him saying, 
I've lost it now. I, I don't really believe any longer. Uh, but this is good for the kids. It's good for the youngsters. That's how he seems to end Ecclesiastes in chapter 12. And so much of what he says is the ramblings of a, a depressive man who has turned away from God. Now, it seems to me that um, here in, in chapter 2 we, we start to see this uh, developing. Because he says in verse 2, incline your ear to wisdom, or turn your ear to, to wisdom. And yet he goes on in chapter 4, verse 20, to use that very same phrase to his son. My son, turn your ear to my sayings. Attend to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. And yet he's earlier said you've got to do that about, um, about wisdom, that you should turn to wisdom. So he seems to see himself as the personification of wisdom, as the embodiment of, of wisdom. And so he came to assume that whatever he said or thought must be right because he had wisdom. And I see a very strong parallel between Solomon having this wisdom, this, all this true knowledge from God that he had in his youth and wrote it all down in the book of Proverbs, I see a parallel between that and the situation that I think we are in as believers in what is called in the New Testament and in jargon amongst us, the truth. God has given us so much truth, wisdom, if you like, but the mere possession of that truth, that we know, for example, that after death we are unconscious, that there is no immortal soul, we know that... There is no trinity, that God is uh, one, and the Lord Jesus had our nature and was a son of God, and so forth. All these wonderful truths are true. And yet, merely possessing them, merely possessing them, will not thereby justify us. And I think that this is where Solomon went so wrong, and it's all written for our learning, of course. That he came to think that because he had this truth, this wisdom, that therefore he personally had to be okay. And he gets to the point, as I say, where what he says about wisdom is what he says about his own words. Well, not all his own words uh, were, of course, on the same level as, as God's. Now, we've, uh, we're looking at this phrase, um, incline your ear to, to wisdom, which we saw there in chapter 2, verse 2. And you've got it again in chapter 5, verse, verse 1, where he says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear, same Hebrew phrase, to my understanding. So he's really confusing himself personally with the wisdom that God has given him. He's assuming that every word of his was effectively equivalent to the word of God. And in chapter 6, verse 21, he talks about the need to bind God's law about your heart and your neck. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, he says the same thing to his Gentile lover, his, this Egyptian girlfriend of his, who it seems to me he should not have had, because she turned away his heart, or was one of those who turned his heart away. And he says in the Song of Solomon 8, verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart and your arm. Well, he says in... Proverbs here that you should, uh, 6 verse 21, that you should bind God's law on your heart uh, and on your neck. But in the Song of Solomon, he tells the girl to bind him there. So, very often in the Proverbs, he uses the language of the blessings for keeping God's law, and he applies that 
to the blessings for keeping his, his laws and principles. You go on to chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. My son, keep my words, lay out my commandments within you, keep my commandments and live. Guard my teaching as the apple of your eye. Verse 3, bind them on your fingers, write them on the table of your heart. Well, this language, those three verses could be out of Deuteronomy, where Moses tells the people of Israel that this is how they were to relate to God's law. But he says this to his son and says, look, treat my word, my principles by which I'm trying to raise you, as if it is God's law. And so I think I start to see why Solomon really went so terribly wrong, because, you know, he's there as an example of how not to be. And it's not just uh, depending how you read Ecclesiastes and depending how you read those historical uh, references to his wives turning his heart away from God. I mean, they're pretty clear in themselves, but it's also uh, possible to see in some of the the words and teaching of the Lord Jesus that he also read Solomon in a fairly negative light. So what does this mean for us? Well, insofar as God has given us his truth, this uh, wisdom that, that we have, we can therefore end up playing God by coming to assume that our words and our will are in fact God's word and, and God's will. And you see this so often, that there is no longer in, in some of us the possibility entertained that we might be wrong. Um, because, well, we have got the truth, because I know these true things, and most other people uh, don't know them. Yes, we have got all those things, uh, but this we shall not thereby be justified. Now, as I say, this is not to say that everything in the Proverbs just put a red line through it, that, ah, this is Solomon uh, going wrong. No, this is all God's truth. I'm talking about the way he handles it. That's my point. Now, verse 3, he says that uh, you should try out for wisdom and lift up your voice for understanding. And he uses the same idea in chapter 8, verse 1, where he says that wisdom cries out loud to be heard. And there's a wonderful mutuality then between God and man, that we cry out to him, we cry out for wisdom, and wisdom, or that's a personification, I, I, I guess, is crying out to us. And to use a, another metaphor, God is in search of man. We are told that, that he is searching very much. In the prophets, we read of, of how God searched in every square and every marketplace of Jerusalem for a man who was really looking for him. And of course we search for God. And so God is in search of man, and we are in search of God. And when we meet, you know, this is why the whole cosmos is, uh, is electric, because of it. So there is this mutuality between God and man. And we talk a lot about personal relationship with God, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. And this is what it's all about that you are searching for something and God is searching to tell it to you. You cry out for wisdom, he cries out to you. Now verse 8, he says, and as I say, despite what I said to start off with, um, all that we've got here in, in Proverbs is God's truth. Um, although, as I say, I, I think that Solomon misused it. He misused the truth, uh, if you like. And he went morally wrong because of that. It says in verse 8 that God lays up sound wisdom for the upright, 
sorry, verse 7, uh, that could imply that God has prepared certain truths for us uh, to find. Through our Bible reading, through reflecting on Scripture, not simply dashing through uh, the readings, reading certain chapters because we feel we should do. But if you're really searching, you will find what God has put in store for you. And, of course, you also learn through life experience that God sets you up for. Because he's trying to reveal things to you. And then verse 8, <clears throat> verse eight, that he may guard the paths of justice and preserve the way of his saints. God preserves the way. Now this is quite a, a theme. And I would like to go through uh, four verses that use that uh, same Hebrew phrase. And it's been said that sometimes the first usage of a phrase in scripture sets you on the right path of interpretation. And I think that is true in this case. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 verse 24. God drove out Adam from Eden and placed Kerebs at the east of the Garden of, of Eden to guard the way, to preserve the way to the tree of life. Now there is an association between the Kerebs Kerub, the and uh, the angels. And so as I see it, the angels are preserving the way to the tree of life. And as is so often the case, if not always the case, in God's judgments, in, in wrath he remembers mercy. And so I see this as not so much a judgment against man, but God promising that he would somehow lead his people to that tree of life from which they, they were banned access at that time. Now, going on, uh, Genesis 28, uh, verse 20, the implication of, of that uh, thing in Genesis 3 there would be that the, the angels then are somehow keeping the way, preserving the way to that tree. Jacob says in Genesis 28, verse 20, If God will keep me in this way that I go, then he shall be my God. And I think that the God of Jacob is a phrase, a, a title, that is quite often used about the angels. I don't want to go into that now. If you uh, want to query that or find the evidence, look in my first chapter of my book on angels. Uh, there's a section there about the God of Jacob. Uh, the God who kept Jacob in the way, or preserved him in the way, it's the same Hebrew phrase, uh, is later identified by Jacob at the end of his life as the angel that kept me from all evil. So again, a connection between the angels and keeping or preserving us in the way. Next one is Exodus 23, verse 20, where Israel are in the wilderness. Uh, Exodus 23:20. I send an angel before you to keep you in the way preserve you in the way, and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Very similar to us, they went through the Red Sea, like we get baptized when we leave the world, we're in the wilderness now, but actually an angel is keeping us, preserving us in the way. And still in that context of the, the wilderness wanderings, uh, Psalm 91, verse 11, Psalm 91, verse 11, he will put his angels in charge of you to guard you or preserve you in all your ways. So then, it's not that God is in heaven kind of indifferent. 
He wants to keep us in the way to the tree of life. And as I say, that the, the cherubs uh, guarding that, that way, preserving that way to the tree of life, is not so much a judgment. It is a promise of God's care in guiding us to that tree of life. Through the wilderness, as it was in Israel's case, as it is in our case, uh, as it was in Jacob's case, to come to, to finally know God in his case at the end of his life. So, in our wilderness journey, in our wanderings, we are being kept in the way. There is a higher hand in human life, all the time, trying to prepare us to get to God's kingdom. Now, we on our side must keep the way of the Lord. Remember Genesis 18, verse 19, uh, talking about Abraham, the angels, interestingly, the angels again, uh, say, we know that he will keep or preserve the way of the Lord. And quite a lot of times in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 6, 11, 22, 30, verse 16, uh, and uh, several other times in Deuteronomy, we read of how we are to keep or preserve the way of the Lord. And yet God preserves us in the way. Um, I'd just like to have a look at uh, Joshua 24, verse, uh, verse 17, which uh, talks about that. Joshua 24, uh, 17. God preserved us in all the way in which we went. This is through the wilderness. So then we are being guided. When we say that we're on a journey, well, we are, but we are not wandering around alone. We are being guided. And there is this higher hand in human life that is, is God's hand and as it were, mechanically, how he kind of does it is through the ministry of angels that is keeping us or trying to keep us in the way. Maybe times in your life when effectively you would have to admit you have stumbled from the pathway. You stumble out of the way, and yet God keeps on bringing you back. And that, again, is part of the angels keeping you in that way. Now, when, getting back to Solomon. And his father David, David at the end of his life, the reference is 2 Samuel 22, verse 22, 2 Samuel 22, verse 22, uh, he, David says that he has kept the way of God and has not wickedly departed from that way. And he, he asks Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, uh, verses 3 and 4, to keep or preserve the way. It's all the... Uh, the same Hebrew phrase that we encountered there in that proverb, talking about God will keep us in the way uh, if we have wisdom. Now that's First Kings 2, uh, 3 and 4. He says, Be strong therefore, my son, this is David talking to Solomon, keep the instruction of Yahweh your God to walk in his ways, um, <clears throat> to, to keep his, to preserve his way, that is the Hebrew phrase, Verse 4, so that Yahweh may establish his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth, there shall not fail you a man on the throne of Israel. So then, God uh, was willing to preserve um, people in the way, such as Solomon, and yet we also have to keep ourselves in that way. God is prepared to confirm us in that way, in the keeping of that way. But 
you see, Solomon twists it a bit. He says in uh, in Proverbs 2 that we just read that if you've got wisdom, well then, that will keep you in the way. Well, it's not quite like that. God gave him wisdom, and therefore he seemed to think, therefore I am absolutely in the way. I've got wisdom, therefore I am preserved in the way. And he doesn't seem to, to realize that, in fact, it is all conditional. If you keep his way, then you will be the promised Messiah. He says, oh yeah, well I've got wisdom, therefore I'm in the way, therefore God will keep me in the way. Well, God twice told Solomon that he must make some effort to keep that way. It's First of Kings 3, uh, 14. If you will walk in my ways to keep my statutes, then I will lengthen your days. So then God is saying that he would uh, fulfill what he promised to Solomon if Solomon keeps or preserves the way. It's as if God realized that Solomon was not quite getting it about the effort that Solomon himself must make. And he says it again to Solomon, when again he appears to him, chapter 11, <coughs> verse 38. If you will walk in my ways, if you will preserve my way, and do what is right in my eyes, keep my statutes and my commandments as David did, then I will be with you. So then, this is all... Um, this is all emphasizing to Solomon that he has got to make some effort to keep himself in the way. But he kind of misquotes all this, I think, in 1 Kings 8.25, uh, in his uh, rather pompous prayer of uh, dedicating the, the temple, where he says, Now therefore, may Yahweh the God of Israel keep, may you keep with your servant David my father what you promised him, saying, There shall not fail you a man in my sight to sit on the throne uh, of Israel. <clears throat> uh, if your children walk before me, uh, keep my way. And so he's saying to God, look, you, you do it. You do your part. And yet the idea of Solomon personally keeping that way, I don't think was, uh, was there with him. And he says in 1 Kings 8.58, uh, in that same long prayer, he says, May Yahweh our God be with us, that he may incline our hearts to him to keep his way. So he's saying, Well, God, you just make me keep your way. Now, David wasn't like that. He had to really keep himself in the way. And in Psalm 39, verse 1, he talks about that, about the effort he'd had to make to keep himself in that way. He says, I will watch my ways, I will preserve my ways, same Hebrew phrase, so that I don't sin with my tongue. I'll keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. I will preserve my way. So, this was a trouble with Solomon, and it can be the trouble, as I said, with, with us too, that we can assume that because we have this wisdom, therefore that that the possession of that wisdom will preserve me in the way. And that's what we read there in Proverbs chapter 2. That's how we started this, uh, this kind of uh, exploration. Solomon's saying, if you've got wisdom, the wisdom will, will keep you in the way. 
Well, it didn't with Solomon, because he, he goes on to say in Ecclesiastes, well, I did all this stuff, and my wisdom remained with me. But he says it was all very far from me. So his wisdom remained with him, but although his wisdom remained with him, he left the way. He did not preserve the way. Wisdom, as in the mere possession of it, did not preserve him in that way. Even worse still, he says in Proverbs 8 verse 32, that his children, he says, I want you to keep or preserve my way. So again, he's making this absolute connection between himself and, and, and wisdom. He thinks that if he had it, therefore he was all okay. Now, we must ask ourselves, not in any spirit of justification by works, but we must ask ourselves what real effort we are making in very personal psychological life to keep ourselves in God's way. Now, what, what music do you listen to? When, when, if you drive to work, travel to work, what are you listening to? What are you listening to around the house? Um, you know, are you really trying to keep yourself in that way? What people are you mixing with? What are you doing with your spare time? What are you talking to your kids about? What do you talk to your wife about? Or your husband? Um, where basically is our heart? Are we really in that way? Or are we really just assuming that somehow God is going to keep me in it because I've got the truth? This is the trouble with the whole idea of truth and the whole idea of us uh, having to figure out uh, truth from God's word and correct interpretation and rejecting false interpretation. That is, of course, necessary and it's part of our uh, our growth. It's part of our path before God. But the problem is that once you've figured out a bit of truth in terms of academic interpretation that hell is the grave for example and not a place of literal fire and torment well the problem is that then you can think that therefore and thereby I am justified and the very possession of it uh, can make you think that well therefore I shall be kept in the way when personal spirituality and personal self-control and mind control and uh, conscious effort to spiritual mindedness is something really quite different now the more Solomon knew I think the more he was inclined to do the very opposite there's a number of times in the Proverbs where he talks about the dangers of the strange woman and by strange woman he means the Gentile woman not a uh, woman with uh, pink hair with green spots in it. Uh, but the word strange, as it's used in some of the older versions, uh, doesn't mean weird. Uh, the idea is uh, definitely Gentile. So he says, if you've got wisdom, then wisdom will deliver you from the Gentile woman, verse 16 of chapter 2, even from the foreigner who flatters with her words, who forsakes the guide of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Now, this would seem to imply that this Gentile woman had in her youth come into covenant relationship with God, and yet she forsakes the guide of her youth in later life. And verse um, 18 is 
even more relevant, I think, to Solomon's experience. Her house leads down to death, her paths to the the dead. Now, her house, the Hebrew idea of of house is not just a sort of brick and, and mortar, a physical house, but a family. Her family leads you to death, and the Hebrew word that's translated death there is actually an Egyptian word, and it refers to an Egyptian idol. When Solomon has that relationship with the the girl in the Song of Solomon, it sort of breaks up, because at the end, she's saying things like, oh, I wish that uh, you could come and live at my mother's place, that is, back in Egypt. And then people wouldn't think that we were weird and all that sort of thing. So this is an exact description of what later happened in Solomon's life. And don't forget that he, he wrote all these proverbs when he was young, when God gave him the wisdom, and so he wrote it all down. And yet he also got involved with those women, uh, those Gentile women, when he was young. In fact, you can work out that he had a child by an Ammonite woman before he even came to the throne. So why did he do it? When he keeps on talking about, watch out for the Gentile woman, uh, you know, she's going to lead you astray. And you think, wow, Solomon, that's just what happened to you. But he says here, no, no, if you've got wisdom, then she won't do this. I don't think the way Solomon read that was that if you've got wisdom, you don't get involved with Gentile women. I think he read it in the sense that if you've got wisdom, you can get involved with Gentile women, but they will not lead you astray. And of course, the the, the, the final comment of God is in, in the king's record that they did lead him astray. Even though he, as he says in Ecclesiastes, he preserved his wisdom to the end. And we have seen so many believers go wrong with all this. I know the truth. I'm in the truth. So sure, I can marry this girl, I can marry this fella, I'm in the truth. But it doesn't work out like that. And these three verses here, 16 to 18, ended up absolutely true for Solomon. This is Solomon's self-condemnation. So then, what are we then to uh, to make of all this? Well, I'll say it again, that the fact that God, by his grace, has given us his truth, should not therefore be, uh, should not therefore lead us into any idea that because I've got the truth, therefore, ultimately, I shall be okay. I'm not trying to minimize the importance of truth or the true doctrine or interpretation of the Bible or anything like that. But that alone will not save you. What will save you is God's grace and you walking in his way. And insofar as we try to preserve his way, he will absolutely, with angels all around us, preserve us in that way.